right, thank you so much, Casey. Uh, Kim, actually, yeah, Casey, we just playing electric guitar today. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Kim does a fantastic job leading us in worship. We are so blessed to have her and a lot of other great young people and musicians here. Um, and so if you're joining us online, um, my name is Anthony. I'm pastor here at Fellowship Church. We want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving and a Merry Christmas. And um, I hope that you have your Easter decorations all up already this week. Um, some of you had Christmas decorations up so early, you're probably done with them by now. Um, but ours are still ours are still coming together. Um, we are in a series right now on the book of Exodus, and we're looking at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy over the course of this year. And um, we're going to take a break here in a couple of weeks. So we've got a couple more weeks left in this first part, which we're just calling the sea. And on Christmas, uh, we're just going to focus in on a Christmas message of God being with us. That's December 19th, as Tim mentioned. And then we're taking the week off after Christmas as a church, but then um, coming in in the new year with a message on relationships. And that message on relationships is just going to be called relationship status. We're going to be looking at ways that as Christians, we are to do relationship. Um, and specifically, we'll be talking about um, romantic relationship. And you might say, I'm not interested in romantic relationship. We'll talk about that too. Talk about singleness and what it means to be faithful in singleness before God. And so that's going to be a powerful series. Uh, and then we're going to get back into uh, the book of Exodus. But today, uh, we're going to look at this um, really one of the most climactic um, events within this whole series, within the whole book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at the first nine of the ten plagues, and today we're going to look at the tenth plague. And what I would like to do before we read um, Exodus chapter 11 is what we're going to be looking through today. just want to remind you that um, why God sent these plagues on Egypt, and I, I hope that you actually kind of thought about that some this week. But here, here's some of the reasons why the plagues were sent on Egypt. Um, number one, God sent the plagues on Egypt so that Egypt would know that God was God, that Egypt would know that he was God. And they certainly, as we're going to look at today, um, realized that at least for a brief moment in time. Another reason God sent these plagues was to build Israel's faith in God, that they would recount these stories for generations to come. And we're recounting these stories today. And so not only does it build Israel's faith, but it builds our faith as well. And then three these plagues were a warning to Egypt of what God would do if they continued to harden their hearts in rebellion and the judgment that God would bring upon them for not letting Israel go. And then lastly, um, it was judgment both on Egypt and Egypt's gods. And I hope that you kind of wrestled with Scripture this week as you thought about God judging um, nations and kings and pharaohs and rulers, but also the false gods of this world as well. Um, today, we're looking at the 10th plague, uh, which is um, about the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. This is the final plague uh, that would cause Pharaoh uh, to relent and to let Israel go free. And we're going to do a couple things a little differently than normal today, but I, I just want to look at Exodus 11. If you want to open up your Bible, um, our app is called FC Online. All of the verses we're going to be reading through will be there. Um, if you're in-house, the verses will be behind me on the screen if you just want to focus on those. And then finally, online, we'll have them on the screen for you as well. You can read along. So Exodus 11, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more 
I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And I recommend that you do that when you get home today. You just go knock on your neighbor's doors, ask them for jewelry, because this is just what we do. We're celebrating Passover. Ask for jewelry. Now, a couple things. This is a completion, a fulfillment of a prophecy made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where um, God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to end up um, held captive in a foreign nation, and that when God releases them from captivity, they're going to go out with great possessions. This is how this will take place, um, and we'll see over the course of this next year what happens with this jewelry. It's going to get melted down. It's going to be used for things both in worship to the God of the Bible and in worship to false gods that Israel would make above the God of the Bible. And so ask the people for their jewelry. Verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. This is interesting because the people did not have favor. When I say people, the Israelites did not have favor in the sight of Pharaoh by any means at all. But here we learn that the Egyptians actually had reverence towards the Israelites because they saw the mighty works of Moses and Aaron, and they were likely very fearful of them. But it's implied here just in the language that these Egyptian people have great respect for the Israelites as well, even though they were their very slaves and they depended on their slave labor for everything that they had. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So not just the people of Israel, but Moses himself was very respected. Uh, I I looked up the word for revered in in Hebrew, and it it just basically means um, that he he was respected. It says that he was great. They they looked up to the guy. They, They had this great reverence and respect and a godly fear towards Moses because of the things that God was doing through him and his brother, um, his brother Aaron. And it's interesting to me, actually, that that it doesn't say it about Aaron because Aaron was the mouthpiece for Moses, but it says that the people had great respect for Moses himself. So in verse 4, it says, Moses said to the Pharaoh, so he's going to be obedient to God. He's going to go to the Pharaoh, and he's saying, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So the firstborn of Egypt will die, not just Egyptians, but also the slaves of Egypt. And again, we've learned like last week that there were slaves in Egypt that were not Israelite slaves that would be impacted by this, so too would even the livestock be impacted by this. And as we learned last week, there's not many livestock left, and so things continue to get worse for Israel. It says, there shall be a worse for Egypt. Verse 6, there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, 
that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So this will not befall Israel, just like some of these other plagues that God kept from falling on Israel. Uh, God here speaking through Moses and Aaron says, not even a dog is going to growl at Israel. They will be that protected. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. This is what Moses is telling Pharaoh. This is what the servants of Pharaoh will do is just demand the people get out. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. How many of you have ever participated in hot yoga before? Anybody? It's like yoga, but with sweating. This is hot anger. How many of you, Thanksgiving week, you experienced hot anger? Not as anger, but hot anger. Not just anger, but your face turns red anger, and you feel hot, and you have to open up a window and cool down before you blow your top. Hot anger. Now, why is Moses experiencing hot anger? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. The Bible doesn't explicitly say why Moses is angry, not just angry, but hot angry, but it's pretty clear to me that he's angry because Pharaoh just won't listen, and Moses knows what's going to befall this nation. It's not going to be Moses's fault. It's not going to be Aaron's fault. It will not even be God's fault. It will actually be Pharaoh's fault that this is going to happen because Pharaoh is a representative before God for the people of Egypt, and Moses is just done with him not listening. And he doesn't want to see this happen to these Egyptians who actually have some respect for him. And you also have to remember that Moses has relatives here. Moses' relatives are the household of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will not listen. Pharaoh is likely Moses' uncle, and so if his firstborn son is to die, that would make that Moses' cousin. And so this has great implications, not just for Egypt, for even the Israelites who knew and probably had some positive and respectful relationships towards the Egyptians. And so it says, you know, that he's not going to listen to you. Moses, he's not going to listen to you. And so Moses is angry. And so as you read through the rest of chapter 11 and 12, God begins to give Moses and Aaron instructions instructions for a commemoration of the coming final plague and their exit from Egypt. So God gives these instructions for this festival, this commemoration, and God calls it in Exodus 11 and 12, he calls it the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. And God's deliverance of them from Egypt to freedom would be so important to the Israelites as a people that this commemoration that God is going to give them instructions for is when their nation's calendar would now begin. So our calendar begins in January. The Hebrew calendar begins when Passover begins. This is now the celebration of celebrations that Israel would begin to follow and commemorate for generations and is still being celebrated today. And you can go to a Jewish Passover cedar as an observer and and watch as this takes place even now over 3,000 years later. 
not only would this be when the calendar would begin, but this particular event would be celebrated each and every year a whole lot like Thanksgiving, actually. And it's interesting that this just happens to fall on the week that we celebrate Thanksgiving. This is this American holiday that we celebrate annually by eating a feast to commemorate gratitude and thankfulness before God. Our Thanksgiving has only been around for about 400-ish years, where this one is going on 3,000-plus. So the elements of this commemoration that God would give Aaron and Moses instructions for, they would actually begin that very evening. And so imagine if you'd never heard of Thanksgiving before, and someone tells you, hey, tonight we're having Thanksgiving dinner. You're like, what's Thanksgiving? And you're like, let me tell you what you need to buy at Winco. And it's going to be nuts when you get there. And it's going to cost a lot of money. And it's going to be stressful. And you're going to have hot anger. And you're going to have a lot of time to thaw and to cook and prepare a turkey. And so get ready. You're doing it tonight. How many of you would be like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for? These kind of final instructions. And so it's going to begin that night. Though this first Passover that they would celebrate that very evening, it wasn't going to be a commemoration. It was going to actually be the means to their freedom. And so in a weird way, God is giving Moses and Aaron instructions to give the leaders instructions, saying, when you eat this dinner tonight, it's actually through the dinner that you're going to be free. Now, when you ate Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday, it was not a means to freedom. It was a means to bloating and laying in a lazy boy chair the rest of your day and having turkey hangover for the rest of the week, but this would actually be the means to which they would experience their freedom. And so before being memorialized each and every year, this night, here is their shopping list, so to say. Each household, get a spotless lamb of a sheep or a goat, and sacrifice that lamb. And then, step two, take some of the lamb's blood and brush it over the doorpost of your house. This is strange now. How many of you get these instructions, and you're like, this is what you need to do. Sacrifice a lamb. This wouldn't have been completely uh, foreign to them. Sacrifice was very common in this day and age. But to take the blood of this lamb that you're about to eat and then to take a hyssop branch, which is like a a brush, and, and to brush it over the doorpost, this is... This is interesting behavior. Once you've done that, prepare some unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Now, we enjoy yeast that rises. I know that one thing that is very popular right now and very Pinteresty is uh, the making of sourdough bread. How many of you are really into sourdough bread right now? If you are, I like sourdough bread. Bring me some, please. Um, and give us a start, I believe they call it. Um, I've learned a lot about sourdough bread from, from my sister-in-law, and it's a, it's a fine art. But um, make bread, but not, not bread with yeast. And the reason why these instructions are given, essentially, is God tells them, you're not going to have time for the bread to rise, and so make bread without leaven, essentially flatbread. And then once you've killed the lamb for each household and spread the blood over the doorpost and prepared this unleavened bread, You need to get dressed. You need to pack all your stuff, get the staff in your hand, and be prepared to go while you eat. And so this is a dinner where you don't take off your coat before you eat. 
This is a dinner where you actually put it on. God gives instructions. Okay, once you've done all this, roast the lamb. You can't boil it. You need to roast it. And when you roast it and you eat it, you've got to eat every single piece of lamb and don't have any leftovers. This is getting pretty complicated. And by the way, eat as fast as you can. So do all this and then eat it as quickly as you can. Some of you, your Thanksgiving would have been a lot more peaceful if you would have just gathered together and your family would have ate as fast as possible and left. Like, just eat quick. Get it done as fast as you can. My son is the slowest eater I've ever met. If you ever sit down and eat with him, it is the most, you're gonna, you'll have hot anger when you leave <laughs> because you will have eaten dinner already and he's still eating like bite two of his breakfast hot pocket. It is very frustrating. Why? Why are they doing this? What's the point of this strange meal? Exodus 12, verse 12 through 13. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Keep in mind, pass through. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Remember, we read that last week. This is not just a judgment against Pharaoh. It's a judgment on their false gods. He says, I am the Lord. I'm God, not these gods. The blood shall be a sign for you to me. A sign for you to me, God is speaking, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For God to spare Israel, a sacrifice would need to be made. It would cost them something. It would literally cost them the life of another living being. The blood of something that was valuable, not just for food, but economically would have been very costly. And so when God passes through Egypt and sees Israel's obedience and sacrifice by the blood on their doorposts, God would pass over and spare them. Now, it's interesting. We don't have a lot of time to get into it, but a question I would just like you to go home and wrestle with this week is, who passed through Egypt? Who passed over the Israelites? Who was it that actually destroyed the firstborn of Egypt's sons? Because in another part of Scripture, that persona, that person, if you will, is actually called the destroyer. So, so is it Yahweh, God himself, that is going about and doing this, or is God working through an agent, uh, an angel of death, if you will? Um, there's a lot of interesting discussion about that, but either way, this is God's act of judgment on the land that these people are going to experience. And this event would happen so suddenly that they would need to be prepared to leave in an instant. That's why the bread could not have leaven. That's why the meat needed to be um, um, cooked over an open flame and not boiled. 
That's why the meal needed to be eaten so fast, and that's why they needed to be dressed with their shoes on, ready with staffs in their hands, with all of their stuff ready to go, because this would happen quickly. And maybe you recall last week we actually read a passage where Jesus says that he would come quickly, suddenly, like a thief in the night. So Moses and Aaron pass these instructions to Israel's leaders. And they give them the go-ahead. Okay, guys, go for it. Get your stuff. Get ready. Let's go. Cook the bread. Roast the lamb. Put the blood on the doorpost. And and, and strangely, each household follows the instructions. Um, You know, previously the Israelites had been pretty contentious with Moses and Aaron, but here they're like, okay, we'll do it. It's clearly God is working in and through Moses and Aaron and leading these people to take this great step of faith. And so in verse 29 and 30 of Exodus 12, it says, At midnight, at midnight. You ever get a phone call in the middle of the night? Those are never good. Phone calls in the middle of the night are are never good. Even texts in the middle of the night are, are never a good thing. And I was thinking about, as I was studying this passage, um, being an Israelite. Now, I wasn't thinking about being an Egyptian because besides Pharaoh and some of his inner court, none of the Egyptians actually knew that this was going to happen. It was going to happen so suddenly. But the Israelites actually knew that this was going to happen. And so they've spent the entire day preparing this meal, going through this ritual, Now they they are at their tables eating this meal with all of their stuff. And this is not a pleasant meal. If, If I am an Israelite, I'm actually terrified. You mean to tell me that sometime around midnight that God himself will pass through this land and destroy all the firstborn sons of the entire nation of Egypt? This is horrifying. And he's going to pass over us and spare us? Like, did we put enough blood on the door? Because I really want to make sure that God sees and that God passes over. You ever seen the movie A Quiet Place before? Or A Quiet Place 2? You you need to if you like to be a little scared. Um, You'll leave that movie never wanting to speak again or make any noise. But in this movie, this family is hiding out from these alien creatures sitting in a basement, and they have to be so quiet while they go about their daily lives because these aliens could come and get them at at any time. Some of you may have grown up in the Midwest or in the South with the danger of hurricanes or tornadoes, and when you hear those sirens begin to roar, you go down to a storm shelter and you just sit there and wait. I've never done it, but it's a terrifying experience, I'm sure. This is what it would have been like for Israel. Uh, Imagine living in in Western Europe, particularly the United Kingdom during World War II as air raids were going on from the Nazis who were dropping bombs throughout the city of London and just sitting there and waiting, not sure if you were going to make it out alive. Even on our own Oregon coast, you can go and you can hear these tsunami warnings begin to blare Uh, But if you ever hear that start to blow in real life, again, that's a terrifying sound. So at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. It's not a happy story. It's not a happy ending. I don't think Moses wanted this to happen. Certainly the Egyptians did not want this to happen, but Pharaoh caused this. And imagine, if you will, living in ancient Egypt around 1300 B.C., and you're sitting in your house made of stone with no glass in the windows, and you just, this is a strange night. And you're hearing cries from every house, from every neighbor around you. This is an absolutely horrifying night. And we read this with just such casuality, like, oh, no big deal. But this is just terrifying. You're eating this meal late at night with your family, knowing this was about to happen, hearing the cries all around you, possibly even experiencing the presence of God's destroyer passing over. Can you imagine? Like, I think of Christmas Eve and, you know, kids waiting for Santa to pass over. Not the same thing. A little bit scarier. Imagine sitting in that house and, and somehow you, you experience a noise or a presence of the destroyer passing over your house and you're just like, oh, we, we made the meal right. The, the blood was over the post just right and he, he passed over us. So Exodus 12, 31. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. Get out of here. We want nothing to do with you anymore. Look at the arrogance of Pharaoh in that last little phrase there. Bless me on your way out. Pray for me on your way out. Really, Pharaoh? You caused this and you want us to bless you? You want us to pray for you? Bless me on your way out. You see, God had already warned Pharaoh that if Pharaoh did not let his firstborn son Israel go, that God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. That was Exodus chapter 4. When God spoke to Moses in the wilderness, that was his exact words. If Pharaoh does not let my firstborn son Israel meaning that's who God chose from all the nations of the earth, if he does not let his firstborn son go, Pharaoh's firstborn son would die. This is likely one of the very first things that Moses ever told Pharaoh, so this is not a surprise to him. And Pharaoh's pride and his arrogance and his hard heart and refusal to obey had now cost him not only Egypt's water and food supply, it had now cost him his very son and the firstborn sons of every person and every beast in the entire nation of Egypt. And now not only is he begging them to leave, but he begs them to bless him. And that's our story. And next week, we'll look at their exit. We'll look at their exodus. What happens when they leave? What happens when they rush out of the land with all that jewelry and with all their stuff after eating all that food? What do they do? And that will take us to Pharaoh hardening his heart 
one more time that we'll look at before Christmas. But here's our point for today. This commemoration that God gave to Israel, it was not just something that would point back to this event. Because you see, even as Jewish people partake in Passover today, it's pointing back to this very event, really the birth of their nation. This particular meal also pointed forward to something much more significant, not just something that would point back, but at the same time point forward. Because not only would the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son lead to Israel's freedom, And the application of the blood of the lamb over their doors spare Israel from death? So too would the death of God's son lead to our freedom. And the application of God's son's blood over our hearts would spare us from death. And so now looking into the New Testament, looking forward, 1,300 years, 13 centuries since that first Passover meal. In the land of promise, where God would eventually send the people to, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the evening before his death, what did he do? He commemorated this very feast. He would celebrate this Passover meal along with 12 of his closest friends, 12 of his disciples, who now we see a little bit more fully represent the 12 tribes of Israel that God would usher out of Egypt. But at this meal, strangely, Jesus would be the Passover lamb. Jesus, God's son, would be that sacrificial lamb because he would be sacrificed the following day. Jesus' blood spilled for our redemption and for the forgiveness of our sins. So 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Now, we were looking at an event about 3,300 years ago with the exodus from Egypt. And now we look at an event about 1,950 years ago where Paul is talking about this feast, a feast that would be started, begun in Egypt, but a feast that would be changed by Jesus on the evening of his crucifixion, and a feast that now not just Jewish people would commemorate, but a feast that now Christians, followers of Jesus, would commemorate for generations to come. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this about the meal of Jesus. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this was a meal these disciples had eaten every year of their life. Most of the disciples, teenage boys, or young men in their 20s. They had eaten this meal many times before. And Jesus, as he passes the unleavened bread, he breaks it and he says, this is different now. This is not about looking back to Egypt. This is now 
looking forward to what will take place tomorrow, and it's about looking back to what I have done for every generation that meets and eats this meal together from here on out who follows me. Eat this bread and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, and by the way, just quick history, um, within Passover, there were various cups of wine that the Israelites would drink to commemorate God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And as you remember, when we look back in Exodus, there is not instructions to drink particular cups, but this is now a tradition of the Israelites, and this is what Jesus is doing as he passes the bread, he then passes the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was given to Abraham, and it was passed on to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and David and so on and so on and so on. And that covenant was that Israel would separate themselves from the world and be called to be holy through the keeping of these Jewish sacraments, really, and through the sacrifice in the temple for their sin. He said, but this is a new covenant in my blood. Do this, drink this cup as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. It's my body. When you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. It's my blood. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what we call communion. This is what maybe your tradition of faith growing up may have called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. It's all the same. This is what we call communion. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we don't usually focus on that line. Usually we focus on the line where Jesus says, do it in remembrance of me. But remembering and proclaiming are a little bit different. Remembering is what we do in our heart. We, we remember what Jesus has done, but when we partake of it, we're just not internally remembering it, but when we take it together in a beautiful, magnificent way, we're also proclaiming it. This is a proclamation. This is a declaration. And so for 2,000 years, as the church of Jesus Christ has gathered throughout the world, when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, it's us not just remembering, but actually proclaiming what he has done. And we believe that in a beautiful spiritual way that the Lord's presence is with us when we do it. So this unleavened bread, eaten in remembrance of the Passover, broken and served by Jesus, would now be eaten in remembrance of his very body, which the next day his body would be broken, killed, laid down for them, just as the body of the Passover lamb would be broken. And sacrifice with its blood spread over the door, now the wine that is drank in a Passover meal would now represent that blood over the door, but more than that, represent the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So now when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember and we proclaim. And we proclaim his death until he comes. So Exodus, we're looking back. 
And the Israelites would look back as they would celebrate Passover. They would look forward to a Messiah to come, even though they didn't fully grasp that idea. And now we look back to the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And you say, well, how long should we take communion until he comes? How long should we do this until he comes? And you might say, well, the church I went to, we did it once a year. We did it, we did it every week. We did it once a month. We did it on the last Sunday, the third Sunday, the second Sunday, the first Sunday. We dipped. We drank. We took together. We had plastic things that were impossible to open. How do we do it? Just do it until he comes. Partake of it until he comes. We can also, like when you sit down and eat with your Christian family, you can make that communion. You can remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and his blood spilled every time you gather together in community. But there's something so special and holy and that brings us to a state of reverence and worship in the glory of God when we partake of the bread and the cup together to do it in remembrance of him. You say, but what about when he comes? Will we still partake of it? And the answer to that is actually, yeah. Because you can read through the book of Revelation where this story really ends and really begins again. That scripture references what we're entering into in Christ when he returns is something called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will continue to eat and drink in a new heaven and in a new earth with Jesus to celebrate Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, and to bring him glory throughout all eternity. In the heaven that I'm going to, there's going to be food, and there will be drink, and we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating on clouds. You're going to be eating the best Chipotle you ever had. (laughs) I don't know, whatever you like. Like, Just imagine food and drink to the fullest. So God's son laid down his body. He laid down his life. He took the father's wrath, the father's punishment for our hardened hearts of sin. His blood covering the doorpost of our heart so that the plague that we deserve would pass over us. And in Jesus, in God's Son, the Lamb of God, who comes to take the sins of the world, in him I am free from slavery. I am spared from eternal death. And I am free and alive in Jesus until he comes and beyond. And that's what we do. So if you'd bow your heads to eliminate any distraction, or if you need to close your eyes to do that, lead you in a time of prayer, and then we're going to um, take part in communion together this morning. I hope the correlation is, is both obvious and mysterious. I hope it makes sense, but also causes you to wrestle. And as we explore that first Passover and its relation to the Lord's Supper, I hope it draws you closer to Christ.
And as I sit here thinking of my own hard heart, my own tenacity of sin and rebellion against God, I'm reminded that Jesus, the Lamb of God, took my place. His blood poured out to forgive all the hardness of heart, all the rebellion, all the disobedience, all the sin. His body hung on a cross, bearing all of my punishment, all of the wrath, all of the plague that was supposed to pass through me, passed through him. Jesus said that he laid down his life on his own accord. He said, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down. And because I lay it down, he says, I can pick it back up again. And that's exactly what he did. And so, in a strange allegorical way, when the Father looks at you and me, those who have put their trust in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, he doesn't see our sins. He sees Christ's perfection. That's why Paul says, For our sake, God the Father made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So he sees his Son, and his wrath passes over us, and it was received by Jesus. And so when Jesus tells us that God loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. When you put your belief in Jesus in a very amazing way, it is just as if you're taking that branch of hyssop and dipping it in his blood and putting it over the doorposts of your heart. So that any time condemnation would come your way, you can look it back in the face because the devil is an accuser and you can say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. My heart and my household is covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that condemnation, that judgment, that wrath, it must pass over me. And because it passes over me, I eat the bread and I drink the cup to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Looking back to Egypt, looking back to Jerusalem with Jesus, looking forward to his return, and looking forward to beyond when, when we eat with him and he with us. And that's what he tells us in Revelation, that, that he will come to us, he will be our God, and we will be his people. So every time we do this in remembrance of him, we're partaking in something that has spanned all of modern human history and will go into eternity. So I've asked some of our staff to come up to these tables in the very front today. Um, when they do, um, they're going to serve you uh, bread, which has already been broken, which represents the body of Christ. And um, just for ease, um, they'll be dipping that bread into uh, the juice and handing it to you that you can partake 
to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and to remember what he's done for you. And we'll invite you in a moment to do that as we sing. Um, we're going to be singing several worship songs. And at any point as we sing, as you've prepared your heart to reflect on what the Lord has done for you, you just make your way um, to either side, um, be served the elements of communion. You can take them up front if you'd like, or you can take them at your seat. We won't take them in unison together because I want each person to uh, settle their heart before the Lord. And Scripture tells us when we do partake of communion, see if there's something we need to take care of. Not to work for our salvation, but maybe to repent of sin. Maybe there is bitterness or unforgiveness or a hardened heart towards someone that we need to let go. So that we, with good conscience and with reverence to the Lord, can understand that he's forgiven us, and because of that, we forgive others, and we partake together. So would you stand, and I'll pray, and we'll begin to sing. We just ask you, um, if you partake of these elements today, just ask that you have put your faith in Jesus. This is something for followers of Christ. It's something for Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you today, put your trust in him. Receive his grace. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Follow him with everything that you have. If you're here and you're, you're not prepared to take communion, uh, there's no pressure to do so. Please don't if, if you don't feel appropriate in your heart to do so. But we want to take this time as an act of reverence, of faith, and of worship together to partake of this together. So God, we give you this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for things you showed us over 3,000 years ago and that you're still revealing to us today. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not put trust in you, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would convict them of sin, show them their need for a Savior, show them, Jesus, that that's you, the way, the truth, and the life. Show them, Jesus, that no one comes to the Father except through you. God, give them faith to trust in you. God, for each believer here, each person who has put their faith in your grace. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts. Convict us also of sin so that we may repent of it and walk in freedom towards closer relationship with you. God, as we partake in communion today, I pray that this would be something that would be done reverently as an act of worship and would indeed draw us close to relationship with you as we proclaim your death until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.